Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. The environment is changing, and that has many of us re-examining modern life, rituals of consumption and practices on how we gather, and on a deeper level, for some, beliefs. It's not the first time. Producer Kimberly Winston takes a closer look. On April 19, 1775, a group of Massachusetts farmers faced off against the British Redcoats and fired the shot that started the American Revolution. That so-called shot heard round the world put the nearby sleepy town of Concord on the map. And there it has stayed for almost 250 years, moving from the birthplace of American independence to the cradle of everything from public education reform, the modern conservation movement, and the first distinctly American philosophy. No one knows Concord as well as our guest, Dr. Robert A. Gross. As a professor of history at the University of Connecticut, Dr. Gross has researched and written about Concord and its environs for the better part of 50 years. His first book, The Minutemen and Their World, was published in 1976 and won the prestigious Bancroft Prize. This year, Dr. Gross produced a follow-up, The Transcendentalists and Their World. It's a biography of both 19th century Concord and its most influential residents, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. Emerson is the father of transcendentalism, a spiritual philosophy that Thoreau then lived out in a small hut on the edge of Concord's Walden Pond. Both men helped change the way Americans think about religion, God, and the individual's relation to both. Now, a little background for those who have forgotten the Emerson and Thoreau they encountered in high school. By the late 1700s, American Protestantism was in turmoil. On one side were the traditional Trinitarians, who held that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. On the other side were the Unitarians, who followed Jesus but rejected his divinity. At the same time, many Christians were tired of dry sermonizing and warnings of damnation. They wanted an experience of the divine. Transcendentalism promised that direct experience through something called the sentiment of religion. As Dr. Gross writes, when Emerson moved to Concord in the 1830s, he was not known as a transcendentalist. But his essays, lectures, books, and the sheer force of his genius would take transcendentalism in a decidedly American direction and make tiny Concord its mecca. I reached Dr. Gross at his home in, where else, Concord, Massachusetts, to talk about the importance of the transcendentalists and where we see their fingerprints in American religion today. The transcendentalists were often criticized by their contemporaries for being opaque or confusing. Will you tell us who they were, what they believed, and why they were important? Transcendentalists can be considered uh, initially as a religious movement among Unitarians, that is, liberal Protestants, in New England, in Massachusetts, in the Boston area, really, um, that gathered force in the 18, uh, late 1820s and then in the 1830s and early 1840s. Um, they embraced both men, Emerson, Thoreau, uh, Mr. George Ripley, who founded Brook Farm, and women, Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, Margaret Fuller, and a host of others who were 
uh, either ministers or lay activists in Unitarianism who wanted to press a new way of um, promoting religion. The theology of Calvinism no longer had any real meaning for them. And at the same time, the ethical focus of the Unitarians could lead to a kind of dry and dusty religion. So the transcendentalists came and argued that what was crucial is not the institutions of religion. Uh, they said that you can worship God in a, on a hillside in the open air just as readily as you can in a majestic cathedral. You didn't have to um, subject yourself to the moral discipline of a congregation. From the transcendentalist point of view, the most important aspect of religion was what they called the religious sentiment, the intuitive sense of divinity within you, within your soul, that connected you to every other human being. In this sense, the transcendentalists offered the possibility of really experiencing spirituality at the same time as they jettisoned the notion of original sin and held to a common perfectibility within all humans. Mm. And Emerson in particular, he wanted to be the preacher who sparked your experience of the divine spirit within you. If his sermons could get you to feel in nature, in the woods, and get you to feel the spirit of the divine within you, then he had achieved his purpose. Because once you felt that divinity, you had opened yourself up to a spirit that was democratic and egalitarian, that every single person had. And every one of us in this view is something new under the sun. A lot of that sounds familiar to us today. What was the impact of Emerson's emphasis on the individual over the group? And why was that message so appealing at that time? What was revolutionary about that way of thinking? What made that especially revolutionary is that the changes were of a piece with a great many other social changes of the day. The upsurge of political democracy and the decline and the decline of deference to um, the rich, the well-born, uh, and the successful. The dominant social change that's going on can be summed up as a kind of pulling back and pulling apart, pulling apart from older communal practices on the farm, in the shops, in the taverns, um, in the congregation, town meeting, and the like, um, so that people were, in effect, insisting on a greater liberty of choice for themselves. And at the same time, now they were embracing new knowledge that was being spread by the Lyceum movement of public lectures, um, by social libraries that promised to get the most up-to-date books with the latest knowledge of the day. They were um, attacking um, the practices of sitting and joining with your neighbors over drinks in the village tavern, which wasted time and wasted money and, and destroyed families from drunkenness. And instead, uh, they bought into the temperance movement that said, you know, give up hard drink and stay at home and read the news there. What I suggest in the book is people are acting one way, but still thinking another. The changes they want are at odds with the ways they've come to understand their lives. And the problem is, 
who's giving a new way to understand your life? Evangelical Protestant said, be born again in Christ, and if you affiliate with a church, we can trust you to be the leaders and actors in society. But if you're a Unitarian who doesn't believe in being born again, who is rejecting that gospel, where do you go? Transcendentalism, with its insistence that society is now founded on the individual, not on the individual's obligations to society, they offer a new way to view and rationalize the new world coming into being. It struck me how very American this idea is, that the individual comes first, that the individual is in and of him or herself divine because God is within that individual. And it's your individual responsibility to pursue the divine within you, preferably in nature, that somehow if you do that, you will be a better person. You'll realize your divine nature and society will be better. But what the transcendentalists do that I do think is American is they infuse their vision of the God within with a commitment to democracy and egalitarianism. And that commitment to democracy and egalitarianism comes out when Emerson says, the moment you accept that each individual has someone in him or her that's divine, that moment, all tyrannies, all hierarchies, topple. All inequalities are um, dissolved. And at that very moment that you accept that there's a God within, slavery comes to an end. So Emerson broadened what was a reform movement in, uh, the, in Unitarianism. This is a transcendentalist reform. He abandons, as does George Ripley with Brook Farm and a number of his, uh, Margaret Fuller and her application of transcendentalism to women's rights. They abandon the more, the, the um, view of transcendentalism as confined within religion and the congregationalist fights and broaden it then to all of life. Emerson goes on the lecture circuit and spreads the ideas of transcendentalism, but it was Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, who was also from Concord, who, who knew Emerson, lived in Emerson's house, and who Emerson called the man of Concord. It was Thoreau who really lived out these Emersonian transcendentalist uh, principles. What did Henry David Thoreau see in Emerson? And what did Emerson see in Thoreau? Henry Thoreau had aunts who in 1825 led the secession from Ezra Ripley's congregation. So Henry David Thoreau must have grown up with a lot of awareness of religious debate, conflict over what are the proper forms of belief, um, swirling all around him. And the most important thing we could say about this is he learned from his mother's example, trust your conscience and act on conscience. If you have doubts and you don't think you're being true to your deepest faith, be true to those doubts and don't do what other people want you to do. Okay. So Henry David Thoreau graduates from Harvard in 1837. And just about in the year two before he graduated, he has discovered transcendentalism first by meeting the minister, Orestes Brownson, who becomes a um, religious and political radical in the Boston area, and then by reading Emerson's book, Nature, 
published in 1836. That's the book in which Emerson lays out his version of transcendentalism, um, in which he says, you know, spirit runs through everything. Therefore, that spirit, that is, the supreme being, does not build up nature around us, but puts it forth through us, as the life of the tree puts forth new branches and leaves through the pores of the old. As a plant upon the earth, so a man rests upon the bosom of God. He is nourished by unfailing fountains and draws at his need inexhaustible power. Who can set bounds to the possibilities of man? Thoreau is much taken with that. Emerson's key phrase to the, the religious sentiment starts to appear in Thoreau's own writings um, by the time he graduates college. He then gets close to Emerson, they build a friendship. And the crucial thing I think that jumps out all the time with Thoreau is that his focus is invariably less on persuading you about what to believe and how to interpret the world as posing the question, if you believe these things, how should you live? And in effect, what we see with Thoreau is he's constantly searching for a way in which he can do two things at once, make a living and cultivate his higher self. That is, he doesn't want to lead a life in which, you know, most of us uh, do, we earn a living, and Monday through Friday, maybe the time we earn a living, and then you have many Americans think, I'm only free on the weekend. Right? So that, and Thoreau recognized, and as did Emerson, that if you're sacrificing and compromising all the time, how would you ever be free to find the higher spirit? Thoreau know, is scornful of organized religion. You know, he says, I love humanity. I hate the institutions of the fathers. You know, the worst sound on the Sabbath day is the ringing of the church, meeting house bell. You know, so for Thoreau, religion is something that you practice deeply by yourself in nature. And that's, you know, now here's the funny thing. The move toward affirming a religion of nature is being um, undertaken by a great many people in Concord, a lot of whom are not transcendentalists. There's a young woman named Martha Prescott who comes to realize that after hearing the boring sermons in the Concord Meeting House, that the woods are the fittest temples of God. Right. So a religion of nature is gathering force even as the Unitarians and the Congregationalists are debating the old themes of um, original sin versus likeness to God. You write often about the women involved in transcendentalism, but when you're talking about Martha Hunt, you say that her story reveals the, quote, false promises of transcendentalism, end quote, for women. So tell me about women and transcendentalism, why it spoke to them, and how it ultimately did not fulfill its promises for them? Well, I think, first of all, Emerson spoke 
foreign idealism. He imbued his vision of the individual acting to realize his inner nature with a faith that would appeal to women who, after all, given the discriminations of the day, were, if they were middle class and married, not in the workplace, denied the ballot, cut out of a lot of reform societies. Secondly, and more radically, to say that we all share a divine human, a divine nature, that it's our obligation in life to realize its possibilities, is to reinforce the ongoing trend in New England to build female academies and expand educational opportunities for them. And when that happened, you see a lot, uh, e- even more women buying into transcendentalism as the means to free themselves from older strictures and demand um, greater power to act on society, better educations. You bring up, rightly, Martha Hunt, whose family I trace earlier in that book. Father was a farmer trying to carry on in older ways, but finding it increasingly difficult to do so. Martha was incredibly bright, and she did so well in the village schools, her parents decided they would sacrifice to send her to a private academy. She's a great success in the academy. Her fellow students, most of them children of wealth and privilege, look at her and say, oh, what a charming, rustic girl. She delights us all with her innocent country ways. She comes back to Concord with her head turned by the compliments and success. Where does she go? Back to the barn, into the farm areas of Concord, where the neighbors said, this is a strange girl. She thinks she's better than the family dairy barn. Meanwhile, She's encouraged by Emerson and Margaret Fuller, the wealthy in the village of Concord, who say, oh, you're so bright and you can do so many things. But what she hears is they're patronizing. So in effect, you can see a kind of a class gap open up that is a capacity of a Martha Hunt to realize the sense that I have divinity within me. I can break from everything and I can realize my possibilities. That capacity is going to be um, stinted. And how is it stinted? In despair. She's teaching a summer school. She, kids are rowdy and don't really want to listen to her. She feels there's no place for her. And she drowns herself one summer day in the Concord River. And she was how old? She was, I think, uh, 24, 25. And she um, is, this, her body is discovered. It, She's fetched out of the river by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Yeah. Who uses the image of her body in his novel, The Blythefield Romance. That's historian Dr. Robert Gross on American transcendentalism. When we come back, Dr. Gross connects 19th century transcendentalists with today's fastest growing segment of the American religious landscape, the spiritual but not religious crowd. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. 
I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Let's get back to producer Kimberly Winston's conversation with Dr. Robert Gross. He's the Bancroft Prize-winning historian and author of The Transcendentalists and Their World. Dr. Gross writes that American Protestants in the early 19th century were hungry for a more experiential, more transforming worship than many of their traditionalist preachers gave them. Many were drawn to transcendentalism and its idea that the divine is found not in church, but in the natural world. Reading that, I was struck by how much that sounds like what many young people say they want from religion today. So I asked Dr. Gross if he could draw a line from the spiritual but not religious back to Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, and the rest of the 19th century transcendentalists. There was a category for the people who declined to sign up for any congregation at all. And they were known as nothingarians. There were the Unitarians and the Trinitarians and the nothingarians. I love that. And they could be seen as the nuns of today. Yes. There were preachers in Boston in the 1830s and 40s who preached a form of religion that was, in the eyes of critics, a little more than atheism. Mm. But there are millions of people who today think that religion doesn't matter. It's spirituality that counts. Yes. Religion connotes church and dogma. Spirituality connotes the individual and inner experience and mindfulness. Um, And you can see this cutting across almost every religion. The stories that I'm telling about Protestantism and its rights are not the stories I grew up with as a conservative Jew. Um, these, but the move to, toward mindfulness and spirituality is as evident in Judaism as it is in Christianity today. Um, so I think we see it everywhere, but the other aspect is crucial. Emerson looked at the way in which uh, conventional commitment to Christianity was declining, but being rechanneled into reform movements. He saw essentially that 
the old piety had left the church and gone into temperance movement and abolitionism and other kinds of reform. And then I think we could see the same thing today, that there are a lot of, of, of faiths that uh, mainly are realized in um, bids for social reform or at other points, say in the 1960s, in building of communes and the desire for perfection. It, Emersonian transcendentalism can lead to uh, bids to change society once you cooperate with your neighbors or radical bids to withdraw from society and perfect yourself. Uh, the legacies are several, not one. One of the tenets of transcendentalism is, you know, once you recognize that God is within every person, then like slavery falls away, right? That's Emerson's claim. Yep. That's Emerson's claim. And yet Emerson was kind of ambivalent about joining the abolitionist cause. Tell me why. Emerson wasn't ambivalent about opposing slavery. He was ambivalent about the ways that the Garrisonians and uh, other groups were opposing slavery. And by Garrisonians, you mean folks who followed uh, William Lloyd Garrison. Garrison. But, you know, Emerson actually admired, I think, the Reverend William Ellery Chang's view of how abolition should be carried out. Uh, It went something like this, that abolitionists, uh, you know, denunciations of slaveholders for all their excesses, sexual license and physical abuse of, of enslaved people, he thought was um, sort of exaggerating for effect what should be really a principle, which is that every human being has autonomy. Mm-hmm. And no human being could ever claim ownership in any other human being. And slavery is wrong in every aspect of slavery is wrong. He's opposed to slavery but is opposed to the dominant modes of anti-slavery. From the point of view of the enslaved, you know, get over yourself, Waldo. You know, that's, um, you're not doing us any good. From Emerson's point of view, it's action on principle that's deeply grounded in the universal self within. That's for him the key. But of course, in the end, he can't really sustain that position in part because it becomes clear um, arguing from principle on the basis of human nature brought as much denunciation from Southern slaveholders as did the Garrisonians. And yet, much quicker than he was to speak out about abolition, he was very quick to speak out um, very emotionally, very powerfully about the Cherokee Indians being removed on the Trail of Tears. Tell me about that. Why was that different? Well, He's called upon by his neighbors to pen a letter to Martin Van Buren of protest. And he does so. And he does so in language that is, for him, at that point, uncharacteristically intemperate. He basically denounces um, the measure to remove the Native peoples as unworthy of a president. It's a fraud. And he said he associates himself um, with the Cherokee by saying, not only are you dispossessing them of their land, but by violating the decent principles of the United States, you're denying us a country to be proud of. So it's dual dispossession, but his focus here 
is really on railing against the president as unworthy of the presidential chair. Uh, when he gets done writing that letter, he himself writes in his journal that the letter was also unworthy of himself, that somehow he felt he'd been too emotional, too intemperate, or maybe that he was responding to pressure to act on the occasion rather than uh, to acting in response to his own impulses and initiative. This is a common theme in him. As a lecturer, he writes in his journal a vow that I'll never say anything for the moment to win over the audience. I'll always speak about something I've thought about for a long time, and then I'll speak from principle. Well, the truth is, he's often speaking to the moment. Emerson's greatest disciple was Henry David Thoreau. And in the book, you say that uh, people who knew them both, especially Thoreau's college classmates, said if they closed their eyes and heard them both talk, they couldn't tell which one was which because Henry fashioned himself, at least in the beginning, on the older Emerson. Thoreau found his voice at Walden Pond. How was his voice different than? his mentor Emerson's. How did he take Emerson's ideas and run with them? I think I would say that first, this is not in right as a writer, but as an individual, Thoreau was always emphatic about how do I take these ideas and implement them in life? You can denounce a political measure, the war against Mexico, you can denounce slavery. What are you actually doing that makes it real? So Thoreau regularly is posing the question, say, in civil disobedience, not do you agree or disagree with the Mexican war, but let's posit that it is an injustice and immorality. Um, how do you make sure you're not made an instrument of injustice? So Thoreau is far more a doer than Emerson was, far more emphatic about implementing things. But of course, Thoreau was a writer, and we read him precisely because he was a powerful writer. And I think I would say that Thoreau's writing carries a voice that um, is far more in the moment than Emerson's work. One uh, supporter, but also critic, would say Emerson could sometimes strike people as cold and distant. He wanted to be above everything and interpret it all. And I think that's what he did in the many lectures that I write about in my book. Um, he, he was like the public intellectual giving the news of the week and the year and of eternity in review. Mm. Whereas Thoreau wants to seize you. Um, you know, the first two chapters of Walden Economy and Where I Live and What I Live For um, have a voice that's really addressing you, my neighbor, who are said to live in Concord uh, and in New England. And there he means as a writer, he said, you're said to live, but are you really living? But also it's addressed to you, my neighbor. Are you really my neighbor or are you a stranger? It's a voice that means to grab you and, I think, um, you know, touch you in a way that you have to suddenly say, do I live up to my values? Can, would, 
Do, am I as much a person of principle as this person speaking to me? And yet, in other occasions, Thoreau comes across as a writer with a deftness and a concreteness that can also convey mo- um, moments of um, of mindfulness and spirituality. Think of when he's um, hoeing the beans in his bean field, and he pauses, and he suddenly hears different birds' um, songs in the air. He listens to the wind. He's aware of of insects in the air. He's looking at the ground before him. And he merges into a kind of moment that of transcendence of all particulars into an awareness, I think, then we have as, a, as readers, of the interdependence of human beings with all living things. And as a nature writer, I think I, I try to suggest in my book that Thoreau takes Ezra Ripley's vision of human interdependence and goes beyond the human and conjures up a vision of the interdependence of humans with all other living things, even organic things. Um, And in that sense, he becomes the author of the foundational texts of environmentalism in America through his realization that we're all part of a shared ecology. And ecology becomes Thoreau's spiritual and secular vision with equality of Ezra Ripley's interdependence that rested upon hierarchy and homogeneity. You just linked Ezra Ripley, who was Emerson's step-grandfather, to Thoreau, who was Emerson's, you know, sort of intellectual son. So in three generations, there's this huge change of thought from the communal to the individual, but also a different way of thinking about how the individual is attached to community, correct? Absolutely. And you could say that it goes further because I, as a historian and reader and occasional, would be inspired. And linking all three of those generations together in interdependence and suggesting through the legacies of Emerson and Thoreau that we're all caught up in that interdependence. That was my guest, Dr. Robert A. Gross, professor of history at the University of Connecticut and the author of The Transcendentalists and Their World. You can find out more about Dr. Gross and his book on our website, www.interfaithradio.org. I'm Kimberly Winston. That's all for this week. If you're interested in learning more about this week's guests, head over to the episode webpage at interfaithradio.org. And while you're there, learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and by all means, explore the archives. You can find our podcast and take us on the go. Just subscribe Interfaith Voices on the podcatcher of your choice. And while you're there, help us out, leave a rating and a review so others can find us. This week's episode was produced by Kimberly Winston, Kevin McCarthy, and myself. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional sounds by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. 
Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are well. I hope you are safe, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.